It was 1983 and Sheila Freeman's life was about to change forever. Well, our group was probably about 15 or so. We were coaches and, and the coaches came from all over the country. And then it was a kind of a nice pleasant day. And, and the idea was you'd put things on the fence. So people brought along pictures of their children and flowers and all sorts of stuff to stick on the fence and say, you know, stop nuclear war. Um, and it was kind of a picnic atmosphere for a bit. Well, for most of it, and then and then we were going to have a um, minute of silence and light some candles. So we had this minute of silence, and I think during that minute of silence, people thought, God, you know, this is really serious stuff. This isn't just having a picnic. <laughs> and uh, and you can see this, some soldiers on the other side, with kind of young guys. There's barbed wire. No way you could just go in there. And uh, so, and they were being kind of jokey. So then after this minute of silence and thinking, you know, this is serious stuff, we just surged forward and started pulling the fences down. <laughs> just rocking these fences until they finally came down. And at this point, there'd been a few police who were sort of, yeah, girls, you know. But then suddenly the police changed and you've got older policemen and tougher. And I didn't see any real violence with the police, but we got the fences down. We were cheering and <laughs> we went home. <laughs> Did you know that that was going to happen? No, I didn't know. While not expected, Sheila found the event exhilarating. It would help shape the next few decades of her life. Welcome to Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman, no relation, and this is episode two in a three-part series about the Green and Common Peace Camp. If you've not heard our first episode, Check that out now to understand the political context in which it emerged. Otherwise, stay with us as we go from Greenham to Sheila's lifelong commitment to protecting the planet. Sheila was born in 1943 and grew up in Oregon. Her father was a journalist who interviewed top political figures, including Kennedy and Nixon. My father was very interested in politics and he'd always watch the news avidly and comments. And in his later life, he'd be watching and we'd be watching it. And then he said, oh yeah, I interviewed him. And he said, he did. <laughs> Sheila was married in 1965 and her husband secured a place at the Warburg Institute, part of University College London. As well as writing his thesis, the couple travelled around Europe, went to the theatre and enjoyed a wide range of music. They attended big political events, including the infamous Grosvenor Square protests against the Vietnam War. They were living life to the fullest in swinging London. Not all was groovy, however. There were family pressures, and their visas didn't allow them to work. Eventually, the marriage began to strain. We sort of grew apart. We didn't get divorced, we didn't have a huge fight, we didn't have a bust-up, but we went our separate ways. Like many suffragettes before her, politics filled the void created by the separation. In 1977, Sheila had joined Friends of the Earth with her husband, but stepped up her involvement after he left. She'd always been interested in conservation and made new friends through the group. She encouraged people to sign petitions and recycle, but prior to Greenham, never any direct action. That was about to change. Sheila came of age in an era of growing awareness about environmental destruction. In December 1952, unusually cold weather mixed with airborne pollutants, mostly arising from coal, 
It created a thick layer of smog over London, lasting five days and killing thousands of people. It was dubbed the Great Smog and led to the Clean Air Act of 1956. In 1967, an oil tanker ran aground off the coast of Cornwall, causing the first major British oil spill. It killed marine life along the shoreline. Two years later, Senator Gaylord Nelson launched Earth Day, following a similar spill off the coast of Santa Barbara. Many cite this as the beginning of the modern environmental movement, a movement that grew as the public gained increasing awareness of ozone depletion, acid rain and climate change. Sheila experienced this shift firsthand at Friends of the Earth. The environmental movements just exploded because suddenly the press discovered the environment and we tripled in size in a year and a half, which was not just, the, not just members, but the staff and everything we were doing, it was mad chaos. <laughs> and um, so I got this job in the facilities department, doing the posts and that sort of thing. Yeah. As the 80s merged into the 90s and the Cold War eased, Sheila focused on the environment. And, and so the, what people would say would say, well, you know, there's no point in worrying about poverty if there's no earth at all. <laughs> there's no point in getting involved even in, in anti-war stuff. You know, the main thing is to save the whole planet. And I was really inspired by that. Um, and, and saying, yeah, it's all very well to worry about sick children. That's good. So I'm glad somebody is. I mean, it's an important thing. But it's more important to, you know, the whole planet isn't going to die. <laughs> It sounds a bit trite, but it is true. There was one particular issue that was really bothering Sheila. And I found this leaflet. I wish I found knew where I found this leaflet. And it was saying, all the stuff that I've been saying for ages, we've got to campaign against cars. We've got to tell people, stop driving. <laughs> Don't buy cars. You know, you're polluting the planet. And friends of theirs are saying, well, you know, some of our members have cars and we can't be too... And they were just being mousy about it. <laughs> they weren't coming out saying, it's got to stop. And, and I read this leaflet, and I thought, that's brilliant. And it turned out there was a group called Reclaim the Streets. <clears throat> so the original Reclaim the Streets met down in Brixton in a place called Cool Town. And I remember walking into Cool Town the first time and thinking, this is going to change my life. And I don't know if it did. <laughs> Reclaim the Streets was formed in London in 1991. It emerged during a period of mass road building, which began two years earlier under the Thatcher government. A 10-year programme promised 2,700 miles of new or improved road networks at a cost of £23 billion. One of the areas targeted for development was Twyford Down, a chalk downland similar to the iconic White Cliffs of Dover. They planned to build a new section of motorway, linking the south-east coast with London. The proposals drew criticism for increasing local pollution, destroying natural landscapes and threatening the Chalk Hill Blue Butterfly with extinction. When political and legal challenges failed, protesters drew on peace camp traditions, pitching tents on the area of the dam targeted for excavation. They also physically blocked the paths of construction vehicles. The group were evicted in what activist Rebecca Lush Blum described as, quote, a horrific experience and very violent. We were dragged through the thorns and we were being kicked and punched and someone pulled out a clump of my hair. Meanwhile, back in London, Sheila was protesting at motor shows with Reclaim the Streets. They also created their own cycle lanes after Lambeth Council refused to install them. Then came word about a major piece of road building up in north-east London, a link road that would connect to the M11 but wipe out communities in Leytonstone and Wanstead in the process. This road went through 350 Victorian houses, uh, a whole community. Uh, so 
so we went up there to sort of help with that. And, and the local people had been through numerous public inquiries and had written to the MPs, they'd done all that. So it wasn't just like we went out there as a bunch of crazies. And <laughs> it was um, all the legal stuff had been done. And they still were going to go ahead with it. And uh, so they started out on the very first day, um, about seven in the morning, they were going to bring the bulldozers out. And so we gathered there, and there were probably about 30 of us with some banners. And they saw us there standing there with these banners. <laughs> and they decided not to work that day. And so they just drove off. <laughs> and so there was great cheers, and we had somebody from the press, and it was, got in the papers, and it was just amazing. And then we had our, oh, then we had this big banner that we put across the house that was going to be demolished. It said, it said freedom to drive or freedom to breathe, question mark, reclaim the streets. They knew the road developers would be back, so began building their camp. But rather than pitching up in a field, they built it on the street, Claremont Road in Leytonstone, to be precise. Claremont Road was, um, it was a funny road because it wasn't a through, you could drive through it. One side, one side was trees and there was a railway stick railway lines and the other side was the houses and then you could sort of go in and then out the other side but it wasn't a through it so it was a kind of closed little community of houses old Victorian um, smaller houses terrace houses in Leytonstone and um, some of them were still lived in and one of them particularly was Dolly who was 93 years old had been born in this house had lived there all her life uh, and all she got was a letter from the Department of Transport saying, sorry, you have to leave. And she said, they're not going to treat me that way. <laughs> I'm not leaving. If they don't have the good graces even to come around and talk to me, I'm not going. So she didn't. And so there she was. And she was quite frail, but she was in her house. And all this madness was going on because we, as time went on, we barricaded houses. We had a, one house was a cafe. And then a guy showed up who was a jazz musician, and so he had a jazz cafe, which was another house. <laughs> so he had these alternate cafes. And we put uh, sculptures in the street, there were sort of things in the street, but there were barricades as well. And there were tree houses built, and then we got a hold of some nets from somewhere, and we put nets between the trees and the rooftops, so you could climb across the nets. Um, from house to house? Yeah, yeah, well, you could go from along, yeah, no, the, the trees were on the other side of the road, and then the rooftops, so they went from the top of the trees to the top of the house, oh. and then they were secured, so that you could walk around in the nets, which is quite tricky to walk in the nets, but <laughs> you could do it, and then they had a, a walkway from the, from the um, trees to the top of the houses, which was also a bit dodgy, but, <laughs> and then inside the houses, Eventually, not right to start with, but eventually they knocked through the walls so you could walk through the top floor down the whole length. And then there was one guy who was a wonderful uh, character, um, Old Mick. He was known, known as Old Mick. Um, he lived on the, that street and had always lived on that street. And he barricaded his tough East End character, but real kind of homely philosopher as well. And he barricaded his own house. And he showed people, like, here's what you got to do to protect your house. Here's what you got to do. <laughs> and, uh, and he was always around. He was always full of ideas and the sort of philosophy of the whole thing. And he kept saying things like, you know, this, this generation is coming together. They're coming together. It's going to get bigger. You know, as I can feel it. It's growing. It's growing. It's going to get bigger and bigger. And he was absolutely right. And it did. 
As the campaign grew, it drew in more diverse people, from the homeless to the wealthy residents of Wanstead. It was all volunteers. I mean, there were people of all sorts. So you had the wealthy people there. You had people who were literally on the streets selling a big issue or not selling a big issue. You had um, families, children, um, very elderly people like Dolly, but some other el quite elderly people. You had this, this one lady, I just remember, she, um, she had little gray hair and done a nice, you know, cat trim and everything. She had a little cross around her neck and so very proper. And she comes in and, and she says, what can I do to help? And he had all these muddy clothes that these people had dragged around in the mud. I said, well, you don't have a washing machine, do you? <laughs> it's a huge pile. And she said, oh yes, oh yes. I'll, I can take these and wash them. And she did. <laughs> How many loads of washing she must have done. And she was completely committed and completely into it from then on. She said she'd never seen so many committed people, so much enthusiasm and energy. Around the same time as the Claremont Road protest, the Criminal Justice Bill began worming its way through Parliament. Described as clamping down on antisocial behaviours, the bill targeted unlicensed raves, which had exploded in popularity. It became infamous for criminalising the gathering of, quote, 20 or more people where music includes sounds wholly or predominantly characterised by the emission of a succession of repetitive beats. Author John Savage criticised the bill for making judgments based on people's lifestyles. Cultural Studies professor Jeremy Gilbert claimed it was a direct attack on people from alternative cultures. The collective trespass clause that affected ravers also criminalised hunt saboteurs and road protesters. The result? Ravers were suddenly thrown together with the activists. And then, and then the criminal justice bill came along. And that was, that was this bill. It was partly to stop rave parties, because there were these rave parties that people with a big sound system would show up in the country, and of course all the farmers hated it, and massive people would show up, and they'd have an all-night party. So they wanted to stop that. So this, this bill said they wanted to stop the, the playing of uh, music with repetitive beats. <laughs> you think, all music has got repetitive beats. <laughs> so no music with repetitive beats. And, and it also was against um, um, going on site and stopping work. And that's what affected us. So then it became a criminal offence to go on site. So all the things we've been doing. Um, and it also affected um, the gay community. And I can't, never, can't quite remember how, but somehow. And also, oh, hat saps. So it had all those different groups were all in this one bill, and so they were all against it. <laughs> and that threw us all in together. And that was how a sound system ended up on Claremont Road. But it, what it did was it, it swelled our ranks with people like the uh, people with sound systems. They'd, had this offshore state circus, <laughs> it was called. Just showed up and parked their huge van and then just had music going day and night. <laughs> it's, it was like you walked into this dream world. You went around the corner into Claremont, this is Claremont Road. And it, was, it wasn't all kind of heavy music, some of it was very ambient, mellow. But the dream world would not last. So I was staying overnight in the, in the office, well the office was a 
It's a really scruffy top floor of this building. It's a mess. Um, and I was sleeping on the floor, as you do. And the phone rings about three in the morning. And this hello. And, and this really serious voice says, listen, now listen to me. You've got a friend in the police. So I think, oh dear, somebody's been arrested again. And I said, look, we've got a friend in the police. It's going, they're coming on Monday morning. And then he put the phone down. The eviction and demolition were set. And they brought in police and uh, cherry pickers and all sorts of stuff. Um, they surrounded the area. And then they just started, first of all, pulling people off the street. There, a couple of people had their arms locked into the actual road. And they got people off the road to start with, but you had people in the nets and on the roof and inside the houses. And there was an all-night battle. It was incredibly dramatic. Um, of the people in the nets and with people trying to pull them out of the nets from below, very dangerously, because it's quite high. I mean, you could die if you <laughs> fell on your head. And a lot of shouting and chanting and drumming. And, and I was on this, one of them was called the flat roof. Actually, the roof had been taken off. So what we were sitting on was the, the ceiling, really. But we were up high, and it was really cold. It was just freezing. And so I was up there on the roof all night. And in the middle of the night, and there was all this battle of the nets going on. And, and they were trying to get into the buildings to get people out, but they weren't succeeding. So mainly this, the nets they were working on. And so I was there all night, and then the next morning they, they were getting people off and getting people off. And sometime during the day, they came up with their platform. And, and I had my own, this is, this is how I get to be famous, but it's not really much. There was a, a barrel of concrete solid concrete with a tube in it that you could lock your arm into. And that just involves putting a carabiner climbing thing on your wrist and, and locking that onto the, uh, the bar that's been put into the, into the tube. And the reason for doing that is then they can just pull you as much as they like and they can't get you out because you're not holding on to it. You're just strapped on. And, well, now that works very well except that the police had unknown to us and developed a, their own little <laughs> device. These, these, the straps were cloth netting, and they developed a, a little hook that you could just put down and cut the netting, and suddenly you're out. <laughs> so here we were, all prepared, the two of us with our arms in there, all prepared. To, they'd have to cut through the concrete and everything like that before they got us out, and it'd take hours and hours. But they got us out right away. And then they hustled us out, and then down this platform, and then out of the area. And there was out of the across the road and down a bit, there was a tiny house that had that was the office then, the offsite office. And it was just madness. There were press in and out. There, people had found dogs and cats and things. They brought them in. People were making sandwiches to sneak down the railway track and, and get in. Um, just people being interviewed, people on the phone, people you know, lost people, they didn't know where people were. <laughs> just, and the whole thing was just this tiny house. It was a tiny downstairs of a house. It wasn't even the upstairs. It's about two rooms. So this went on and on. So anyway, that's how I got out. But eventually the whole thing was demolished. The fight for Claremont Road was over. Exhausted and dejected, Sheila and her friends gathered at the Rainbow Centre in North London. And it was upstairs in the squatted church, which had been used for all sorts of stuff. So there were pens and crayons and junk on the floor and a couple of dogs probably and some kids. And we were sitting around in chairs and some of us on the floor. And we said, well, what do we do now? Um, do we carry on with um, the M11? Because it's been a long time before they actually finished the road. 
And I'm saying, yeah, well, you could do that. And then they said, well, definitely the people live around there. They have a lot of complaints about noise and pollution and things. But, and there were a couple of houses still were there in a different area. Well, in the same area, but not Claremont Road. <coughs> there were those, but we thought, well, we've got this mailing list of a thousand people. And we'd like to carry on something that's big. <laughs> so they said, well, we could block roads. Uh, and I said, yeah, it takes about 10 people walking across the road to block the road, and then they get you off, and it's half an hour, and it's finished. <laughs> so they said, well, how about blocking the road for all day? You've got a whole lot of us out there. And then we kept expanding on that idea. I said, take a really major road, Elephant Castle or something. <laughs> or something. Uh, or they thought about the road going through Hyde Park. They said, well, just hold that forever. Um, so lots of ideas, and then uh, they thought about during after the war when they put bunting on, down the streets and they had tables going down the streets. Um, I thought about that, and then we thought recreate recreate Claremont Road. We'll have our cafe, and we'll have parties, and we'll have the music, and we'll have food, and it'll just be recreated on on the road. So we, that's what we kind of <laughs> went with. So that was second coming of <laughs> reclaim the streets. The first resurrection of Claremont Road took place on Camden High Street. The usual supporters were there, but an additional 300 people came out of the tube and joined in. They organised another in Islington, then King's Cross and Shepherd's Bush, numbers growing all the time. People danced in the streets, blocking traffic with a party that went on all day and night. Soon the movement spread across the country, from Birmingham to Liverpool. Britain's roads were under a free party occupation. By the end of the 90s, the idea of Reclaim the Streets had spread around the world. It culminated in 1999 with the Carnival Against Capitalism, a global day of action focused on financial districts. History books will say Seattle was the first global, anti-globalization, but they are wrong. It was London. Because some of the people from America were in London and talking and there were contacts. And they said, well, we've got to do something like this in, London, in Seattle because it's going to be this big thing. And they did, and it was much better organised and a lot more people and much more violent and all sorts of things. Without a clearly communicated vision of what it wanted, the anti-capitalist movement faded away in the early 2000s. Reclaim the Streets also morphed into other things, including guerrilla gardening and street parties against the arms trade. So what did any of it achieve? According to Twyford Down activist Rebecca Lush Blum, the Conservative government planned to build 600 roads. By the time they left office, only 150 were built. When the Labour government came into power in 1997, they scrapped the remainder of the road building programme, committing to an integrated transport system. Sadly, not all promises were kept. By 2019, car ownership showed no signs of slowing down. But the number of young people holding licences is in decline. So much so, it has the motor industry worried. With advances in technology bringing us services like Uber, electric bikes and scooters, along with the huge cost of motoring, cars are a turn-off to young people with massive student debts and zero-contract-hours jobs. Protests often aren't precisely timed, but happen because people are angry. The Green and Common women were angry about the threat to their children's futures. Ravers were angry that their music was criminalised. The anti-capitalists were angry about globalisation. It may not have been quite the right time for some of these movements, but those moments of anger do not exist in isolation. They build between generations growing resistance. I'm reminded of Tony Benn, who said, quote, 
There is no final victory as there is no final defeat. There is the same battle to be fought over and over again. So toughen up, bloody toughen up. It is with these words in my mind that I watch the Insulate Britain Road protests that are taking place as I record this episode. Video footage of angry motorists reminds me of some of the Reclaim the Streets parties I went to. Yet what seems to be missing, besides from the music and dancing, is the solidarity between different groups. What Claremont Road captured so beautifully was the coming together of so many interests, so that 93-year-old Dolly was fighting alongside ravers, old Mick was sharing his philosophies with the wealthy women of Wanstead. Since the referendum in 2016, Britain is divided like never before. But maybe it's time to find our commonalities again, building a new movement from the ashes of Brexit. next time as one woman's experience with Green and Common led her into the heart of the Labour Party. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. Better still, tell your friends about it. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London Project which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the William Morris Big Local for funding today's episode.